You are listening to a sermon from Covenant Hope Church. Thank you for engaging with us. If you would like more information about our church family, please visit www.covenanthope.church. We pray that this sermon encourages and challenges you today. If you haven't done so already, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Isaiah 49. If you don't have one with you or not totally sure where to find it, you can grab one of the black Bibles that are right in front of you and turn to page 646. We really do want you to follow along with those, so it's not just my words that you're hearing, but you are seeing God's word given to us as we walk through this passage today. As we begin, I want you to think about a young boy growing up in a home where he is seen as, well, really not all that important. Maybe in his own father's eyes, he's valuable, but outside of that, he's kind of a nobody. He's growing up in a really working-class family, even at a young age, sent to help the family by working hard with his hands. Not all that important. From the world's eyes, when they would look and they would see him, there's nothing special about him. And yet all the while, feeling like there is something greater that God would have for him. And if I'm honest, we could probably identify with that. I don't know many of us in this room that the world would look at and say that we are something special. We're pretty average, maybe somewhat even insignificant, which is an encouragement this morning because God's Word is full of Him using people just like that to do great things for His own glory, for His own message of the gospel going out. But if we want to step into the Bible for a minute and just look at two potential characters that I could be talking about, the first one being Joseph, all the way back in Genesis. Now again, Joseph was the apple of his father's eye, but that's about it. He was one of the youngest of his brothers. His brothers didn't really care for him much. I think that's a nice way of saying it. They sold him into slavery. They loved him so much. Uh, So they didn't like him. He was insignificant. He was sold into slavery. He was then a servant in a household, and even that didn't go very well, thrown into jail, and felt, had to feel at some point like, God, what are you doing with me? Am Am I useful to you in any way? Or I could be talking about David. David was the youngest of his brothers, and so insignificant, even in his own father's eyes, that when God had decided that Saul was not a good king for Israel... And he was going to name a new king. He sent Samuel to Jesse's house, David's dad, to anoint a new king. And Jesse brings out his big, strong, firstborn son. And, of course, this is who would be significant. This is who would be the one that God would want to use for something important. But it wasn't him. And it wasn't any of the other brothers. But David wasn't even there. David wasn't even at this meeting with Samuel. And so God, as he does, has told Samuel to say, hey, there must be another one. And so Jesse goes, well, yeah, yeah, there's this scrawny one that's still out in the field, but you're probably not talking about that one. And of course, that's exactly who God was talking about. And that David, that insignificant, would be one that would go and fight Goliath, a picture of Christ fighting the sin battle that we couldn't fight, and he would then become the greatest king of Israel in which there'd be much peace in the land. Not a perfect man by any means but a man that God would use greatly. But in their own ways, pretty insignificant at certain points when the world would look at them. 
which again, as I said, is an encouragement to us this morning. We're going to look at another servant that at times was seen pretty insignificant and ministry that looked like it failed and not going to accomplish the mission that God had given him, and yet, because of God's faithfulness, he will accomplish his mission. Last week, we started a mini-series for Christmas. We tend to walk through books of the Bible so that you hear from the beginning to the end of what God has designed and created and given to us in his word, but we've started this mini-series to point us to the fact that the ministry and the gospel of Jesus isn't just for us, but for all kinds of people all over the world. And so last week, we looked at Jonah, a very reluctant, to say the least, uh, prophet of God who God would use to save the great people of Nineveh who were Israel's enemies. And Pastor Cody challenged us and said, are we okay with the fact that God would love and even save our enemies? We had to struggle with that a little bit. And today we're going to be challenged even further to say not just our enemies, but all kinds of people everywhere. So as we step into the book of Isaiah, since we're not walking through the whole thing, let me just catch us up to where we are. Isaiah is a prophet. He's writing to the people of Israel, but Israel's not in a good spot. Israel has been taken captive by the Babylonians. God has used this fearsome pagan nation to punish and chastise his own people for their rebellion of God as their own God. They, they were worshiping idols. They were forgetting who God was. And so God used this pagan nation, but they were a fearsome nation, and they did hard things to be God's people. They took them out of their land. They destroyed their temple. They couldn't worship God as he desired to be worshipped. Isaiah's writing into that. God's people are hurting. God's people are lost and wondering if God is actually faithful. And so the book of Isaiah as a whole is filled with God's pronouncement of their sin, but it's also a book full of God's hope because God is the one who would be faithful and out of his faithfulness would deliver his people. But what they didn't know yet was the deliverance they needed was much bigger than what they anticipated. If we were walking through the book, chapters 40 through 48 would be about this deliverance out of the hands of the Babylonians that would then bring the people back to their hometown, which they could start rebuilding. We're introduced in chapter 42 to a servant, a servant of the Lord. There would be four servant songs. We're going to pick up the second one today. But all of that, if we stopped after chapter 48... All we're excited about is God is going to deliver his people and there's going to be a servant that's going to come and bring justice. But that justice is going to be more focused on the people returning to their land. What they had missed is they needed an even greater deliverance than from the hands of the Babylonians. They needed even greater restoration, not just simply to their land. And so as we pick up today in chapter 49... We're going to see that God's deliverance isn't simply from Babylonians or a political party or any type of world power, but was we need a deliverance from our sin, and we need a restoration not to a place, not to a certain status, but to our God who we have been separated from. And so that's where we pick up today in Isaiah 49. And we're going to look, as we walk through this text, we're going to look at the characteristics and the calling of this servant and this, this deliverance isn't going to come from military or political might like you would imagine, but instead it's through the proclamation and the pronouncement of God's grace to the world. And so as we walk through this, as we look at these characteristics, when we finish that, we're then going to go back through and we're going to look and see where does our place in this story fit? Where do we fit in this story? So if we were to look at all of Isaiah 49, 1 through 7 today, we could boil it down to this. That it is insufficient 
for the Lord's servant to merely restore the exiles of Israel. Insufficient. But that he, this servant, will extend and he himself be God's salvation to the ends of the earth. And so church, may we labor to bring Christ all the glory due him as we take that light to the nations. That's our call this morning. So let's look at the markers or the characteristics of this servant of the Lord. The very beginning of verse 1, this servant calls to the nations. Coasts and islands, listen to me, he says. Distant peoples, pay attention. This is no longer Isaiah writing, but the servant of the Lord speaking. Now quickly, we're not going to get caught up in coasts and islands versus distant peoples. Uh, something that happens often in poetry, and especially in the Old Testament, and especially prophetic poetry, is something called an apposition. Now we know what an opposition is, right? It's when two things are opposed. An apposition is when two things are like and they're put together to drive home a point or to elevate the significance of something. And we're going to see that multiple times today. And so he's saying coast and islands, those who are far off. In other words, not just Israel is he speaking to. He's saying, listen to me. Listen to what I have to say. Often when a prophet would speak to the nations, it was condemnations. It was a challenge to them. In this case, this is not that. This is an invitation for them to hear and see what God's plan for this servant's life is and all that God will accomplish through this servant. They're invited in to the conversation and to listen to what the servant of the Lord has to say. So that's number one. Number two, the servant is called, prepared, and concealed. The rest of verse 1 and all of verse 2. Apposition again, right? The Lord called me before I was born. He named me while I was in my mother's womb. This is speaking to the fact that when we say the word calling, especially in the Old Testament, about a prophet or a servant of the Lord, this isn't just he was called something. This is he was set apart. He was commissioned for a task or a mission that God would give him. And the cool thing about this is this servant of the Lord was commissioned to a mission from God, even before he was visible on the earth. This is God working before this person ever comes on the scene, already with a plan of what he would do. It's like, make my words and make me like a sharp sword or like a sharpened arrow. I said before, this isn't coming through political or military might. This servant is going to work through his speech, through his actions. He is going to proclaim something, and people are going to respond based on him and what he has to say. Last week we saw Jonah, as we said, not a very good prophet, with a really poor attempt at proclaiming God's message to the Ninevites, and yet God worked. In this case, unlike Jonah, this servant's words and this servant's actions will absolutely accomplish everything God intended and be exactly what God had purposed. But look at verse 2. It says, He hid me in the shadow of his hand, He hid me in his quiver. The idea of God hiding, the idea of God concealing this servant for just the right time. God always acts, and it's always in just the right time. The reality is God has a plan for every single one of our lives. And we talked about Joseph at the very beginning, and, and that's a very personal story to me. There was a period of time in which uh, we were trying to figure out, like many of you have been in before, Lord, what are you doing with our lives? 
We came to seminary here in Wake Forest. We assumed we were headed overseas. That's what we thought the Lord was doing with us. Through different reasons, that didn't take place. And we thought we were going on a church plant up to Ohio. Um, The Lord had been preparing us, we thought, for multiple years, working with that team, praying with that team, laboring to write documents and doing vision trips and, and all of that. And yet the Lord closed that door for reasons that we still don't know. Pastor Cody's glad that that happened, um, which I'm thankful for. But we didn't know what was going on. And we felt like, Lord, what are you doing with us? And during that time, we knew, obviously, God was teaching us. And there was the church we were at. There was a faithful guy there teaching what we call our equip class. They called something else. But that discipleship time before the worship, he was teaching on the story of Joseph. And he was talking about it. And at one point, he said something. If you added up all the years of Joseph's life that were insignificant, that were useless to God, if you look at it from a worldly perspective, it adds up to something like 13 years, which is both encouraging and slightly terrifying. I didn't know if I wanted to wait 13 years, but, but there was a sense where God was reminding us through Joseph's story, through my story, through maybe many of your stories, that God sometimes will conceal until just the right time. In this case, this servant was brought on the scene at just the right time for what God had planned. He was called, prepared, and concealed. Thirdly, the servant will glorify the Lord. Verse 3, he said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. It may seem obvious that, of course, a servant of God is going to glorify God. It means to make much of him. It means to make much of his glory, expound his glory. Now, there is some disagreement here. On is the, you know, in our English translations, it's servant, comma, Israel, comma, in whom I'll be glorified. And I'm not an English major, but generally that looks like we're calling the servant actually Israel. And maybe, and so there are some people that believe it's actually the people of Israel that would be God's servant. Obviously, I've been using it as an individual, and I still hold to that because verse 5 says that this servant is going to bring Israel back to God. I don't think Israel is going to bring Israel back because they've already messed up. There's a, in the, in the original Hebrew, there's a marker there that potentially could be a Paul. So it could be something like, you are my servant. In Israel, I'll be glorified through your work. Or it simply could just be that this servant is the true Israel. That is the embodiment of everything Israel was called to be but failed to be. And I find myself in that, one of those last two right there, that ultimately what God is saying here, you are my servant. You are going to be everything that I called Israel to be, but they failed to be. And through you, I'm going to be glorified. At the end of the day, I think this verse highlights to the original hearers of Isaiah's message that they had failed to be what God had called them to be. And God was going to have to take someone else, a servant, to then be what they were called to be to redeem them, to restore them, to deliver them from their sin, to ultimately make much of God's glory. Fourthly, this servant experiences apparent futile ministry. Look at verse 4. But I myself, the servant saying, I have labored in vain, I have spent my strength for nothing and for futility. Not really what you would expect. Given the preparation, the protection, the empowerment of this servant, we would expect a very bright report. Look at all the wonderful things that this servant accomplished for God. Instead, that's not the report we get. This servant reports, at least from his own eyes, at least from a worldly perspective, 
that he may have failed his mission. He may have labored in vain. The servant's work appears to be an abject failure in his eyes. Church, that's not really hard to relate to, is it? Who in here has felt like you've been serving the Lord or desiring to serve the Lord and not felt discouraged at certain points? If you're a parent, your goal is to live in a way that displays God's love to your children. You're speaking and teaching them God's truth, desiring all the while to see them come to faith in Christ and to obey you and to love the Lord. And there's weeks or months or sometimes longer that you just don't see that. And it looks like you see rebellion and you see arguing and you see all the things that don't look like the things you're shooting for. And you step back and you go, God, this feels like I'm laboring for nothing. Or maybe you're discipling someone and you have spent hours upon hours, weeks, months, years walking alongside of them, praying with them, laboring along with them, not just teaching from afar, but genuinely walking with them, only to watch them fail in the same sin pattern again and again and again, and stepping back and going, Lord, is this worth my time? Is this worth it? Or maybe you're sharing Christ with a coworker or a friend. You've been praying for them for years. You've been asking the Lord to help your, your life match your speech. You've been proclaiming the gospel, their need of a Savior, over and over and calling them to repentance, only to watch them continue to walk away time and again. And we step back and we go, man, have I been laboring in vain? When I get to the end of my life, will all that I've worked for even matter to anything? The servant would feel the same way. But verse 4 doesn't stop there, thankfully. The next word in our translation says, yet. In light of all, even with all of that, yet, my vindication is with the Lord. My reward is with my God. Even though my labors seem in vain from my perspective, God is not judging me based on the outcome of that, but based on my love of Him, my, servant to him, my, my service to Him, my care for Him, and laboring in what He's called me to do. That is where this servant finds his reward. So while he does experience futile ministry, he's also prepared in verse 5 to restore Israel to the Lord. Now verse 5 starts with, and now says the Lord. And if you look down at verse 6, it says, he says. So what the Lord is going to say is not actually verse 5. He's going to actually say it in verse 6. Verse 5 then is a parenthetical statement. Before we get the full weight of what God is going to tell this servant, we have this reminder of who God is, the one who is speaking. Remember, these Israelites are worshiping the things of the creation and not the creator. And this, this servant is reminding God's people that the God who speaks is not some lifeless wooden idol carved by human hands or anything else in the world they may choose to worship, but he's alive and the God who can say, I had a plan and that plan will come to fruition. This is who the God is. This servant was commissioned with the purpose to bring back or to return the people of Israel to God. His work was to call people of Israel to spiritually turn away from their sin and return to the Lord. We said at the beginning, we say it again, the nation's central problem that, that, that this servant was, was attempting to solve wasn't that they would just need to come back to their homeland and do everything as they were doing before. Their greatest need was their sin that needed to be taken care of so they could be in right relationship with their God. 
And this servant is reminding everyone else that God who created him, who formed him, is going to accomplish that. The last part of verse 5 expresses that confidence. Any human evaluation of his past successes or failures is not really that important. All that matters is that the servant will eventually be honored in the eyes of the Lord because of what he will accomplish through the power of God. But the task that God has for him is much greater, verse 6. The servant is given a global mission. So now, when, when we finish this parenthetical statement, we come back to see what it is that God is telling this servant. We are privy to a conversation that's taking place long before he ever comes on the scene. And he is told, it's not enough for you to be my servant raising up the tribes of Jacob. It's not enough for you to restore the protected ones of Israel. I will make you a light for the nations to be my salvation to the ends of the earth. This is what we've been waiting on. This is what we who are not Jews have been desiring to see. That God wasn't simply just sending a servant to restore a small group of people. This is the crescendo of the entire servant song. God lets us know that it is his desire that Jesus or, or that this servant who would be Jesus is going to be a one who will save all peoples, not just a small group of people. God had in mind that the glory of this servant wouldn't be small but would be huge. The glory of this servant, the one he is going to work through and bring salvation to the ends of the earth, is a global task. He says this servant will be a light to the nations. The, the motif of light and darkness is prevalent throughout the Bible. In fact, if you go all the way to the beginning, at the very beginning of God's word, the first time we have recorded God speaking, he says, let there be light. God speaks into darkness. Light is formed and throughout the rest of the Bible we have this motif of light representing that which is good, that which is pleasing to God. The glory of God seen as light set against darkness. That which is the absence of God's glory. Things that are related to sin and sin's dominion. The servant is to be the light. It's to be the one who brings the goodness and the glory of God to the whole world. That world that is currently under darkness and the ruler of this world called the prince of darkness. This servant would be a light to the nations, given a global mission. And lastly, this servant will accomplish his calling. Verse 7, this is what the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel, the Holy One says... Three grand names of God. The Lord, the Redeemer, the Holy One. And he's going to speak to his servant and see how he addresses the servant. To the one who is despised. To the one who is abhorred. To the servant of all. It's not a very high praise for this servant. Because going back to verse 4, that's what it looks like. The God of the universe has sent this servant in who will be one who is rejected, who is one who is despised by even his own people, one who will end up being a servant to all, but, but God gives us the rest of the story. Because at the end, these mighty kings of the world, these rulers, these princes will stand up and recognize this servant and will bow down because the Lord is faithful and chose this servant. All of this because God is faithful. 
now that we've looked at this servant, in this setting, it's not really hard to see who that servant is ultimately fulfilled in. That there's no human being that could have come on this earth by himself and become all of this because each of us carry our own sin with us. God needed to send another that's fully God, fully man, to be in our place and for us to fulfill all that the servant is called to fulfill. So if we look really quickly, let's see Christ as the servant. 1 Peter 1.20 tells us that he was foreknown. He, Christ, foreknown before the foundation of the world what was revealed in these last times. God's plan long ago was that Jesus would be this servant, would be the savior of the world, would be the one to bring the message of salvation to the ends of the earth. But for a time, God kept him. Hebrews 1 tells us that uh, at the beginning that God was speaking to his people long ago through his prophets. But in these last days, he speaks to us through his son. God had a plan that for a while concealed him until the time was just right. Obviously, Jesus is going to be the one that glorifies God perfectly. The people of Israel had failed. We failed to honor, respect, and love the Lord like we ought to. We needed one that would come as a perfect representation of that who would live a perfect life that we couldn't live up to. In fact, if you remember, we've talked about this a bunch of times. When God makes a covenant with Abram, and they they take the sacrifices and they cut them in half and they split them apart, the idea was you and the person you're making a covenant with would walk down the middle. And that it was a representation that if either of you didn't keep up your end of the bargain, you would be like these ones that are on the ground to be put to death. And God causes Abram to fall asleep, and then God walks through on his own, saying, I'm going to keep up my end of the bargain, but because I know you're going to fail, I'm going to keep up your end of the bargain as well. And if you look right below our passage today, this servant is called a covenant to God's people. Because we failed, Israel failed, and we likewise failed to live up to the standard God has called for us to live. And so Jesus came as the perfect one to become a new covenant for us, to be the one who would stand in our place that we may have a right relationship with God. But if you look at verse 4, don't forget, it says that this servant would look out and feel like his work was futile. If you think about Christ. As he's being crucified, for times of his earthly ministry, lots of people listening to him. And then he would say a hard word that was difficult for them to either believe or that they didn't want to hear. They would walk away. And just a few days before he's crucified, there's throngs of people saying, Hosanna, Hosanna. And yet some of those same people, many of those same people, start to say, crucify him just a few days later. One of his own 12 betrays him. One of his closest buddies denies him three times the night he's arrested. And as he's hanging on the cross, there's not a single one of his apostles except just John. His mom and a few other ladies. That's all that are there as he's hanging on the cross. It would be very easy from an earthly perspective to look out and go, all that Jesus did was for not much. And yet... We read, part of First John, we read part of John 1, 9 today. But if you keep going to verse 11, the true light that gives light to everyone who is coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was created through him, yet the world did not recognize him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Yet, that's not the end of the story. Because he is the Messiah to the Jews. 
He would die for their sins. He would become the Messiah that they needed to deliver them away from their sin bondage, but to back to right relationship with God. But it had to come to the Jews first, because that's who God had originally sent him to before it would be taken to the ends of the earth. Paul tells us in Romans 1, 16, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, because it's the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes, but first to the Jew and then to the Greeks. Jesus was the fulfillment of the law that the Israelites had failed to live up to. He says in Matthew 5, I, don't, I didn't come to abolish the law or the prophets. I didn't come to abolish, but to fulfill. But Jesus wasn't just the Messiah to the Jews. Jesus came to save the whole world. Sometimes when we know these verses too well, we kind of just throw the Messiah as kid verses. But we need to remember and feel the weight of John 3.16. For God so loved, what, the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. And then if you continue, verse 17, but God did not send him into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Paul writes in Romans, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Jesus didn't come for just a small group of people. He came to bring a message of hope and salvation to the ends of the earth. And even though, verse 7, if we're reminded of that, it may have appeared for a while that Jesus wasn't as powerful as the Jewish mob that had him arrested or the Roman officials that tried him, convicted him, and crucified him. That's what it may have looked like. But Christ will accomplish everything God intended and everything that was proclaimed in verse 7. Remember Philippians 2, that when all is said and done, starting in verse 9, therefore God had highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Which knee? Every knee. Those kings, those princes, those rulers, they would stand up and they would bow down before this king. Every knee would bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And just in case we think that somehow that was pretty nice, but the world's still going to continue on, Revelation tells us the end of the story. Revelation 11, it says, The seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. This servant of the Lord is Jesus sent, not only to redeem just the people of Israel, but to be a message of hope and salvation to the entire world. He sent him into the world to be the light of the world. And that's the king that we worship. But in a room this size, I'm confident that there is at least one here this morning whose life wouldn't be described as that of light, but would be living in darkness. Maybe you don't think that. Maybe you look around and you see the people around you and life's going okay, and so you're thinking, I'm not sure what that guy's talking about. My life feels pretty good doesn't mean you're not walking in darkness. It doesn't mean that God doesn't have more for you, that the things of this world that you put your hope in, your trust in, just like the Israelites had done, those are all fleeting. But that God has something more for you through the servant that he sent on your behalf. Or maybe you're sitting in darkness and you wouldn't argue with me in that. Maybe you would look at your life and go, that's what I feel. I feel darkness. Depression and anxiety or fear and disappointment, those are the things that you look at. I want you to know 
that before the foundation of the world, God knew that you would be in that place. And he already had a plan to send a servant who would stand in your place, die for you so that you may be made right with God. Jesus came to die for your sin and my sin so that we could have our relationship with God restored. Jesus coming to save sinners, by the way, that's why we're here. That's why we celebrate Christmas. That's why we gather together every Sunday morning to celebrate the God who would send a servant, but in this case, his own son, to make us right with God. For the rest of us, for all of us, we've seen how God promised a servant that would not only bring some temporal deliverance from the situation that you're in, but would bring an eternal deliverance of sin that would make us right with God, that we would spend an eternity with God. He did so through Christ. And in and of itself, that's enough to worship. Because God didn't send just any servant. He sent his own son, the God-man, fully God, so that he could stand in the place of all of us and pay for all of our sin, fully man, so that he could really stand in our place. He could take our punishment. God did that so that the light of the world, the salvation could go to the ends of the world. But our response shouldn't only be worship, and it should be worship. We ought to every day worship our God for that, but there ought to be more. Our response should also include inviting others into this celebration of the Christ who has come this Christmas season that we celebrate. We ought to be inviting people into that. Look, all week, I can't get over verse 6. When God speaks to this servant, he said, it's too light a thing for you to be a small savior. That my plan has been for the entire world to be saved. People from every tribe, tongue, nation. All of it. And anything less would be insufficient glory for Christ. And that's where we fit in this story. As long as there are unreached nations, as long as there are people from every tribe, tongue, and neighborhood that will respond to the gospel but have not yet, then Jesus hasn't uh, received his full complement of glory. A yearning for Christ to receive the full due of his glory ought to inspire us, ought to push us to missions day in and day out. If you don't believe me, Paul and Barnabas in Acts 13, they took the last part of verse 6 as their personal mission statement. By the way, a statement made from God the Father to God the Son, now they're going to take it upon themselves. When they said in Acts 13, 47, For this is what the Lord has commanded us, plural. I have made you, singular, a light to the Gentiles to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. It is Jesus, singular, that is the only light to the nations. But we, the plural, are called to take on that mission. Christ is the head of the church. We, as the body, are to to follow Christ as our head and to, to take on that mission to invite others to proclaim the gospel so they may, may, like us, be saved, redeemed, restored to the God of the universe. And if we continue looking at Paul, he says that we should proclaim to the lost all around us today, not someday down the road. We should not in any way allow the unrepentant any comfort to think that there's always a tomorrow. 2 Corinthians 6, Paul says, no, 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 the day of salvation is today. Today is the season of God's grace. Today is the day of salvation. We are to worship this servant of the Lord. 
but that should also cause us to live on mission, to proclaim his goodness to every single person, your neighbor, person you work with, or someone halfway around the world that God's going to call you to go minister to. Let us worship that God by joining him in mission. Pray with me. Father, this morning, first of all, we praise your name. As Pastor Cody prayed earlier, God, we walk into this room with sin, which is a reminder that we ourselves could not make our relationship with you right. That we needed another one to come to live the perfect life we could not live, to stand in our place and for us so that we could be restored to you, delivered from our sin. So God, this morning we praise you that you didn't send him only to save a small people group, but to take that message of hope to the ends of the earth. And then God, we thank you that you've commanded us to join into that. So God, this morning, as we prayed last week, as we prayed this week, that as we celebrate this Christmas season, may we not be like the Israelites depicted in Jonah last week, that we really don't want your salvation to go anywhere else but us. May we not hold on to it too tightly as it's just for us, but be reminded that it was your plan from the very beginning that this light would go into the, all the darkest reaches of this world. God, may you convict us where we have held on too tightly and too personally to this gospel and been afraid and been unwilling to share it with those who need to respond to it so that you may get your full glory. Not as though you need it from us, but so that's how you designed it to be. God, may we join you in that, in that work. God, we thank you for Isaiah. We thank you for that promise that would come so many hundred years later in Jesus. God, in all this, we give you praise. Amen.